My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who started his career in the U.S. Air Force and was quickly selected for special training as a combat weatherman and earning a position with the combat weather team, which provides meteorological and oceanographic intelligence information in and for the Army's special operations. In 1999, this guest was working counter-drug operations in South America where he suffered a catastrophic vehicle accident which left him paralyzed from the waist down. After two months in a coma and not sure what had happened, this guest was forced to start an all-new life of trials and pushing himself further than he thought possible. Multiple surgeries, divorce, isolation, physical and mental pain led this guest to CCI, an organization that is determined to change the lives of all their clients through the use of service dogs. This week, we hear the story of Nepal. He brought a life of fulfillment and dreams that seem so far away to my guests. Please welcome to the studio, Jason Morgan. What's going on, my friend? Uh, Not much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I am so happy that you're here. Uh, This book that you put out, A Dog Called Hope, fantastic book. It was a long time in the making before you wrote it, before you got everything together. And then all of the things that kind of came together when you actually met the author was absolutely amazing in this book. But we have a lot to talk about, but we always start out the conversations by saying, we want to talk about as you're growing up, you're born in Dallas, 1969. Your dad was in the Air Force. Did you have other family in the military? Did you have an idea about the military as a child going into your high school years and knowing that that's what you wanted to do? No, I really didn't. Um, It's something that always interests me, but, uh, you know, my dad was, um, you know, he was out of the service before I was born and and never really thought about it. It It's just one of those things that the timing, the timing was there. I was, uh, our, uh, our high school team won the, the 5A state championship and it looked like golf was going to be my career and going off on a golf scholarship. And then, uh, I got to college and realized I, I wasn't as good as I thought I was, <laughs> but, um, you know, this uh, opportunity presented itself and, and, uh, it was the best thing that, that ever happened to me. I know that you believe and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you believe that everything happens for a reason and everything happens at a time for a reason. Would you agree with that? Um, I do. I mean, everything does happen for a reason. I don't know if it's always um, God causing the reason. There's always causes and effects. Um, but I do believe that you can make the most of every situation. And, you know, you can, you know, I always try to, my life has been always kind of trying to make the best out of a, a bad situation, which I've, I've had a few of, unfortunately. <laughs> we all Well, the reason I bring that up is because, you know, you talk about going to college on a scholarship. Um, Your parents had said, play multiple sports, but only be really good at one. You can only be really good at one. I want to look at your life now through a lens that 
if you go to college and you finish it out and you are as good, it's a completely different life. And not just for the, you know, the absolutely staring you in the face reasons, but I think it's different. I think your life has turned into a life of service. All the people that you've brought into this organization, all these people that you've brought to the service dog um, industry into letting them know that they can live a life past what they thought they could. Do you ever think about what your life would have been differently or at any point have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I have a few times I thought about there's a lot of always what ifs and what ifs, but um, but honestly, I, I I don't think I could ever imagine a, a better life than what I have now. And not, I mean, yes, it could be better. I couldn't have the paralysis and the severe pain I have every night. But, you know, I found out life is more than about yourself. It's about making a difference in, in the lives of people around you. That's what life is, to me, is about. And that's what um, gives me purpose and fulfillment. Let's, let's talk about your family a little bit growing up. Um, I want to talk about uh, brothers, sisters, mom, and dad, and what each one of them mean to you now and what they meant to you through this entire ordeal because they've really stuck by you in a lot of the story in the book, and they've done some amazing things to help you through this point in your life. So let's start with your brothers and your sister, and, and we really want to focus in on the sisters, uh, excuse me, the sister, because I want to talk about some things that happened with her and you while you were going through this. Yeah, we have a very close knit family. And, you know, I think that was um, essential in, in where I am today. I mean, they've, my older brother, he was just, he's the picture perfect version of an older brother. You know, he taught me how to play sports. He, he just kind of put me under his wing and and I uh, learned a lot of lessons, hard lessons that he learned. You know, he was just always, always there for me. And, you know, having a twin sister is um, is a very unique experience that not many people, you know, can can even um, can realize or um, imagine. And having, you know, my sister that's that close to me, it's, um, you know, we're still, our whole family is still very close. But, yeah, they've, they've been a, a huge impact in my life and, and uh, where I am today. The thing that I want to talk about about your dad, I think you describe him in the book as a diamond of a dad, but he never really showed emotion, never told you he was proud of you until a certain moment. Can we talk about your upbringing with your mom and your dad? Because I think they taught you some life lessons very early in life that have paid off in dividends for you now. Yeah, they have my, you know, I think, um, I think my dad, one of the reasons why he was, why he's like the way he was is that he never wanted me to be content with my life. I was very good and school and very good and, and as an athlete in many different sports. And I don't think he just, he just, you know, when you're content or, you, or you're, you know, content or, or happy with where you're at, then, you know, it's not much of a life. It's always about pushing yourself forward and, and exceeding or passing your limits. And I think that's, that's why it was like that. You know, he just never wanted me to, to feel like, oh, life is good. Now I can slow down and everything will be fine. You know, and I'm, I am so fortunate that he was like that. i it was exactly what I needed through the life that I've, I've been through. And my mom's just, just huge. She's always supported her dad and, and me and the rest of the family. She worked hard and provided, you know, food on the table when my dad wasn't able to, when his business wasn't going so well. And, and just always been a huge, both of them been a huge inspiration in my life. Well, I want to talk about kind of their marriage as compared to the first one that we talk about in the book. As you're growing up and as you're going through this, you see this really family bond that happens with your family between your mom and your dad, the strength and stuff. 
When you first got married uh, to the wife that we're talking about in the book, um, did you feel like that was something that was going to happen? Did you see any of it coming of uh, be, not being able to kind of see past these things? Um, or did you just look at it as your family growing up? Because you had a pretty much picture perfect family growing up. You know, I did. And, um, you know, sometimes I wish, you know, I mean, even 24, I think is too young to, to be married. You know, it's, it's, you know, when you go through some of that, there's obviously a lot of, a lot of lessons learned, but no, I had a, I had a great family. Um, at first we were close and, and three amazing boys. And, um, at first she was very supportive of my, in my military career. And, um, yeah, it started off really good. I thought this was, um, you know, as everyone does, you, you're married forever, you know, and, um, but things, um, quickly turn from that, unfortunately. So I want to talk about that in the beginning. When you talk about that, it was very supportive of your military career. You didn't just go into a regular military career. First, I want to talk about uh, kind of what that does, because not a lot of people have heard about these guys uh, and not a lot of them have heard about it being special operations. So can we kind of talk about your job, what you did? And then I want you to explain that because I want you to show how often you were gone, that you you did see that person that was holding down the fort when you got back and you were gone on a lot of different missions and stuff. So let's talk about the job first and then what it entailed for you to do in your career. Sure. So as my job as a combat weatherman, um, there was only 72 um, Air Force guys in that job. In fact, sometimes they call us unicorns. Please don't call me that, but they uh, call us unicorns because there were never, there were so few of us were rarely seen, but so we, uh, we worked with the Army Special Forces, um, Rangers, and different special operations. And what our job was is to provide meteorological data behind enemy lines or denied territories. So if the teams or Special Forces unit went on a deployment, uh, we'd go with them. Not only that we were up to speed as far as a special operator, as far as shoot, move, and communicate, but we we're, you know, a, a full meteorologist. So, you know, everything is, is geared around weather, you know, so... You know, my job was to tell the weather to them to plan the missions around it. I was there with mission planning and to um, to let them know how to use weather as an asset as we went on the missions. It was it was very vital, very important, very challenging, but um, it was it was a great job. Now, the one you were with, the Tenth Combat Weather Squadron, that is the only weather squadron that's designated with the combat. That is right. Yes. Okay. And so when they do that, they were around before, they were kind of uh, mothballed for a while and then brought back. When you go into the Air Force, is this something that you're looking at to do? Because like I said, this is a very uh, opposite path that a lot of people take to get into special operations, but it's a very uh, well-used and very well-needed kind of job in that area. Yeah, well, no, you know, actually when I first went in there, I was recruited to go into weather just because you have to have a high score to go into that. And, and I thought, you know, whether I was trying to be a, I already had my pilot's license and I was trying to be a, um, you know, a corporate pilot. And, um, you know, that's when brand up went out of business and it just wasn't looking good in that direction. And, and I thought that weather would make me a, a better pilot. And then, you know, when that failed and I went, uh, I started off in the reserve, but then went on active duty. And just being regular weather just wasn't very satisfying. I didn't didn't enjoy it at all. Um, I'm a person that always tries to push myself, and 
high adventure, thrill seeker, and adrenaline junkie, I guess, as you would say. And then and when I found out about special operations weather, I thought this would be the perfect job for me. I just had to figure out how to make it through um, how to make it through the training. It's a high washout rate. And and you did make it through the training and you were very successful in your career. About the book, I want to ask you, it's it's kind of read almost halfway. It's read from two different points of view, uh, you and Jim. And I want to know before we get into the injury and before we get into the main meat of the story, why was your book written that way? I I, I kind of figured it out at the very end what I thought it was written that way for, but can you kind of explain so people understand going into the book? You know, that's more of a question for uh, for Tammy and Lewis, the, the co-author. Um, we kind of talked about it briefly, but that was just kind of his, and he'd never done a book like that before. He's written several books and several very good books. And I think it was just really interesting to see it from two different perspectives. You know, I mean, we're two guys that are somewhat similar, but worlds apart and how, um, how his hardship and what he did turned into um, my success, I guess. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I probably don't have a really good answer for that. But. Well, and, and the only reason I ask that is because there's a lot of parallels between you and Jim when he talks about it. There with is. the football, with um, how you guys came together at the end of the book to talk. There, There's just a lot of parallels that happen. But as you're reading it in the beginning, before you kind of join the story, uh, you as yourself uh, right. join the story, um, it, it's hard to understand that. And so I want people to know going into it that you're seeing the perspective of this guy and you're seeing the perspective of this guy from kind of everyone around him. And then it melds into you uh, full circle with him at the end. Yeah, I just think it's a really good job is what he did is about two different lives. You know, there was uh, the puppy raiser that raised my dog in my life and then kind of what we went through and and then how our lives just mingled together into one story. I, I just think that was a great way to, to write it. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that he, he did it that way. I just think it tells a story much greater than it would just being from, you know, one point of view. Absolutely. Okay, so let's, let's get into what the meat of the book is about. Let's get into the injury and what happens. It's 1999. Uh, Ecuador is where you're at running uh, counter-drug operations. That kind of sets up the story. I want you to take over from there and, and let's go into it. Sure. So we were, um, we were there for about five weeks. We were there with um, several special operation units from the U.S. and from uh, local assets from Ecuador. <clears throat> and our job was to, um, to teach them that there's a, you know, a drug terrorist group there called the FARC. I think it's kind of similar to Al-Qaeda except in South America. I mean, they're pretty big. They got tanks and they've got a pretty large army so our job was over there was to help and teach the ecuadorian and colombian special forces how to combat against them um so we went on several missions um kind of leading the way to make sure that they knew what they were doing teaching them along the way through some some different operations um it seemed like a success i mean everything went pretty well i mean as well as you can imagine being in a country like that but um, it wasn't until one of our uh, one of our helicopters broke down. I was with the 160th, the Night Stalkers. You might have heard from them from uh, the movie Black Hawk Down. They're also the helicopter unit that got Bin Laden. And they do a lot of black ops, and I was actually assigned to that team. And one of the helicopters broke down. We were about wrapping up and ready to get it back. So they had a guy drive an eight-hour drive to the capital city of Quito to get a part to bring it back. And so they asked for volunteers for 
special operators to help um, provide security for them. Um, we already had an incident several weeks before I got there and uh, knew it wasn't, um, it, it, that could be a dangerous mission just in itself. But so to me, my, um, my best friend at the time, Travis, we volunteered and we're along with them and about halfway through the, the journey from what I remember um, from my flashbacks that we got ambushed from behind and me being in the back seat, I was hanging out the back seat trying to disable the vehicle behind me and the people in it and our driver didn't make the next corner, which was called Dead Man's Curve and went off a ravine and the vehicle just started um, rolling down the ravine. Since I was hanging out of the vehicle, I was flown, uh, thrown from the vehicle, um, landed face down and the vehicle rolled over the top of me, crushing my back. In fact, I was... Um, I wasn't really even visible from the ground. I was smashed so far down into this, um, like this little area that had some um, static water in there and the vehicle kept going. And then um, it was um, probably, we're guessing about five minutes later, American missionary, Steve Sutherland, was checking on one of his remote antenna sites and he saw the skid marks and he stopped. And him and his coworkers got out just to make sure there wasn't another accident because they'd seen many there before. And he saw our vehicle at the bottom of the ravine. We were like a Susie Rodeo, just a white SUV. We never used military vehicles or we weren't even in uniform as we usually never were unless we were flying. And um, he told me that on his, I'm not sure if this is in the book or not, because he told me this after the book was written, but on his way down to the vehicle, he found me because he stepped on me. I was so buried and face down in the mud. And um, he was able to to pull me out and I was start breathing. I was able to start breathing again. And then, he went on to um, check on the other two vehicle, the other two guys in the vehicle. The driver being okay, my best friend Travis, he'd also broken his back and was paralyzed from about the waist down. So then they decided, um, several other people stopped to help in the rescue and they decided to, um, to they need to call the embassy first because they couldn't take us to any hospital. It was, um, I mean, there's like bounties out on us, just even for our uniforms. So you couldn't take us anywhere. So he called the American Embassy, who they didn't even know we were there at the time, and they um, told us a hospital to go to, and they'd provide security at the hospital. So uh, they told Steve, they said it'd be about three hours before the ambulance gets to you, and he decided that um, he didn't think I was going to make it through the three hours, and he told him, he said, referring to me, he goes, I don't think one of these operators or one of these soldiers is going to make it the three hours. He's gasping for every breath, and uh, so they decided to load all three of us in his in his um he had a minivan loaded all three of us up in the minivan and meet the ambulance halfway and um very fortunate did that because i was told when i got to the ambulance i quit breathing and started chest tube and reinflate one of my lungs to to revive me and, and have me start breathing again so it was uh it was quite a rescue very fortunate to be here obviously with him coming by, uh, that goes back to that question that I asked you in the beginning. Everything kind of happens yeah. for a reason um, yeah. that, that he just happened to be out checking that. Now, back then, because I don't remember it from the book. Now, him stepping on you, that actually is in the book. They, they do oh, mention okay. that. Um, but were you a religious man at the time? Um, I was. I was. I, I, um, Travis and I both were, the other operator that got hurt with me. Um, you know— it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say so much religious, but I was definitely, you know, a believer and, and had strong faith. Um, but, you know, it kind of dwindled, you know, in the military, sometimes it goes away and stuff. And I think that was a time that um, in my life where I was really starting to, um, 
to get serious again about my faith. You know, it's, um, you know, unfortunately it kind of comes in ways, not happy to admit that, but I think at that time that I was really starting to um, come back into a, a stronger relationship with, with God. So as you move and you, this big operation to get you guys back, uh, what happens once they get you back? Because there's so many different stops along the way just to get you back to the United States and, and what they were doing. So can we go a little more into that? Because once we get to the United States, we're going to mainly focus on the hospital portion. It was so, um, you know, I, and even so, it, it, if there was anyone else that was there to rescue me, they wouldn't be able to do it because the cell phones weren't working in that area. So you had to use just shortwave radio to combat, to uh, contact his radio station who called the embassy. Um, so many things had to happen for me to be here. And even getting me back into the U.S. was difficult because when you're on a, a black ops, they can't just send a medevac plane to get you because it has U.S. Air Force or U.S. Army written on the side of it. So they had to coordinate a um, a generic aircraft to and then medevac it out and then come and get me, which I think they had to use two air crew. That way there wouldn't have to be any pilot rest. They could have one crew fly to get me have, and switch around and have the other crew, um, you know, come to get me back. So, yeah, just the rescue in itself was amazing. And I was back in the U.S. within 48 hours. Um, yeah, my hat's off to the to the guys that, that coordinated this rescue for, for Travis and I. So once you get back, you're in the hospital. Now, they put you into a medically induced coma, correct? Yes. Okay. They they tell your family, you know, they come there, they visit, um, and they tell you, they tell your family right away that you'll never walk again. This is what has happened to you. They, they can't go really deep into the mission. Um, but you talk a lot in the book about people being in the area to talk to you and that, that people still in a coma can hear and things like that. Um, do you remember any of that in the hospital? Because there were some strange things. You, you thought that you were being held as a prisoner. You tried to get away. You talked to the oxygen tank in the room about a rescue. Um, do you remember any of this in the flashbacks that came later on or anything that was happening while you were in the hospital? Um, I do. I remember the nightmares. Those were to me was the only real thing about me being in the coma. Like, Sometimes I felt like I knew that something weird was going on, but I didn't couldn't quite put it together. Um, but when I had these hallucinations or these, um, I'm not sure what they were called, but um, I kept having this. Um, I guess you call it a dream that I was captured by the Colombians and I was or Ecuadorians and just trying to get away. And but I remember that I, you know, it was a long time ago now. But especially when I came out of the coma, I remember those dreams very well. I remember a few people coming to visit me and saying things. So, um, you know, everyone thought that I didn't know anything, but I knew a lot more than, than they realized that I did. It's, it was kind of weird because I couldn't really piece all of it together into like one storyline, but I picked up on a few things here and there and I knew where I was. Uh, I knew there was something definitely wrong with me. I didn't know what, but, um, yeah, the, so there was a few things that I did. I, I do remember from that, um, from my coma in the hospital. I remember one thing that I wanted to ask you about, and before I ask you if you're religious, and the reason I ask you that is because your brother leans over to you uh, while you're in the hospital and asks you what your favorite Bible verse was, and you repeat back a Bible verse to him, and that gave him a bunch of hope. Now, things happened after that, but do you remember that happening or why that happened? I don't, and um, after I was 
told of that story, um, you know, that was my favorite verse, but for no real reason. It wasn't until many months or learning that I, I didn't learn about that till several years later. And it wasn't until I learned about that verse, I realized that that verse was like spot on with what I was doing in my life then. It's like, I, I know why it's my favorite verse now. Um, I had no idea, you know, at the time, but it's amazing how much, um, how much that verse has come into realization and, and become a part of my life. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think that sometimes it, that God puts words in your heart, maybe not for now, but for maybe for a later use, you know, that he's training you for something, you know, in, in the future or preparing you at least anyway. So let's go a little further into this. Um, I want to mention your sister real quick too, because we talked about you having that close bond and actually why you were in the hospital they had just checked on you, left, and she said to go back inside and check on you. You were in the ICU, um, and your dad came back in, and you were actually having a seizure. Your blood pressure had spiked because I think they were getting you ready for a surgery the next morning. Is that correct? Yeah, they were, or they're, and they're also telling my family, like, tomorrow's going to be a long day because my lungs were in such bad shape. They finally felt that they were strong enough to have the surgery to stabilize my back, so they kind of told my family too, like, you know, go home, get some rest because tomorrow's going to be a tough day. They went downstairs to the cafeteria and then on their way out to the parking lot after they finished eating. So my sister told my dad, I was like, you need to, you need to check on Jason. I just have a really, really funny feeling about it. And, um, you know, when he came up there, I believe I was in cardiac arrest and my blood pressure was through the roof and, um, no one knew about it. And I see because my alarms were accidentally muted. So it wasn't until my dad called the attention to the staff that they, um, realized what was going on. And and I the reason I bring that up is because over and over, like I said in your story, that missionary comes along at that time. Your sister has this feeling to come back in and check on you when your alarms were silenced. And not only were your alarms silenced, but there was also a mass casualty going on because of an accident that had happened on the post. So everyone was busy there too. Um, has that ever happened again with your sister or do you ever remember that happening again? Because that bond seemed closer than anything in the entire book other than you and the dogs. Uh, no, nothing ever like that's happened, happened since. And hopefully there won't be a need for that to happen <laughs> again. Um, you know, I always tell her, I was like, I hope if something ever happens to you, God forbid, I hope, I, you know, I hope I had that same bond I had with you, but yeah, she, um, she lets me know every once in a while that she, when she wants something like, you know, I saved your life, right? So, uh, no, she doesn't. <laughs> All right. So let's talk as you're in the hospital for a little while, you come out. I want to talk about the mind state. We talk about that a lot on this show. When you come out and the doctors don't sugarcoat it at all, they tell you you're never going to walk again right away. Uh, and, and from what I understand in the book, I mean, they jumped right into <clears throat> it, both feet and told you this. Let's talk about what you're thinking about and and kind of the first thoughts that are going through your head of how you're going to live out the rest of your life. Because like you said, you'd always gotten along well. You were a physical guy. You like camping. You like being out in the in the outdoors. Um, what goes through your mind when all this happens? Well, I think first it was denial. Um, and I just think that who are you to tell me what I can or can't do? Of course, he's a He's an experienced doctor and well-trained. That's why he can tell me that. But, um, um, yeah, first it was denial. And then, um, I don't know. There's so many, so many emotions. I, I just, you know, I had this picture. I didn't know anyone that was, 
young or athletic in a chair. And the only person that I've known are, are elderly people. And so I'm just, I'm thinking that, wow, my life is going to consist of me being in this 70 pound chrome chair with someone pushing me around and not being able to have any type of quality of life at all. I mean, that's, that's what I thought. And it was, um, it was extremely depressing. You know, I, I'm like, man, I just, you know, I was like living my dream. I was in a, a special operations unit that few people get into and um, to be able to make it through that. I was living the high life of, of, of my dream and accomplished so much. And I went from that to thinking that I was just going to be, you know, having no life and no quality of life at all with a massive amount of nerve pain from this, from this wheelchair. So it was, it was, it was tough. There were, there was a couple of things that happened later that changed my mind. But at first I, that's, that's where my thoughts were. So as that happens, do you just go into shock immediately? Does your mind just start trying to do damage control what is going on with that? Um, I think all the above. I think um, at times I just think I'm going to get better. I'm going to walk. I'm going to show them. There's other times that just, um, like I said before, just how can I live any type of quality life like this? And uh, But, you know, the one thing that really that gave me hope was that, you know, that we talked about earlier was that so many things had to happen for me to be here. So I knew that God wanted me to be alive. There was just no doubt with, you know, and there's many more things that, you know, we didn't get to that um, seemed like one miracle after another that, that, or, um, that, that caused me to be here. So with that in the back of my mind, it always gave me hope. That was, that was a good thing, about the only good thing. Now, I want to mix this with the pain of what's going on because you're going to have to explain the surgeries a little more because they're they're very in in detail there's a kind of a sarcophagus that's put on your back there's there are um things that are made to stabilize it can you explain what you're going through what you feel the first time you can kind of feel that stuff and um how does that change your mentality at all well yeah at first yeah i was put into this um huge brace that went from my waist all the way up my back um it was it was more than just a praise. It was like a cast. It was a cast. And, um, I, I couldn't really do anything. I could barely, you know, that, um, I, I couldn't use the, even I couldn't even use the restroom on my own. I couldn't even roll over myself. I had to get nurses had to come in every three or four hours to turn me. I, I couldn't do anything for myself at first. And it was, um, and the, the pain that went along with it. I mean, I just, I felt like someone was like stabbed me with an ice pick. Sometimes it was so bad. I mean, I'd be screaming out. It would be, um, the pain was just, um, hard to even describe. It was, it was miserable. That first year was just absolutely miserable. I mean, I was, there was a couple of good things that happened, like getting out of the hospital and doing different things. But, um, yeah, I was pretty miserable. When you're there, how do you explain that to someone like your family or someone like your your ex-wife, how do you explain that to them to make them understand exactly what you're going through? Or is there really no way to explain so that someone can at least get on your level so they understand the mood swings, everything that's going along with it? Um, yeah, I, I think it was almost pointless to explain. I, I think um, I, I kind of thought my... Uh, 
my focus during that point was not to um, let them know how bad it was because I, I knew how bad they felt and how bad they felt for me, um, what they've been going through with me being in the hospital and day by day for, you know, six weeks. So I, I think it was more just um, try to hide it and try to keep a smile on my face. Um, not the best way to deal with things, but, you know, in my line of service, that's the way you learn when tragedy happens, you deal with it really quick and you get over it and it's time to move on, you know, and, and that's necessary for the military and going on different missions, but not very good for, uh, for life in itself. Um, I, I think it made things worse. And that was going to be my next question. You talk about the military, but we're talking about a year on in, like there's gotta be a certain point at six, seven months in where you're like this, nothing's changing. Nothing's really happening. Um, what does it do to your mind state then as you go through and you see six months, seven months, eight months down the road that a lot of things haven't changed? They've still told you a, a bad outcome. They've told you all these different things. How do you get yourself through? That's the big thing, because I think that you show that all the way through this book. How do you work through this and how do you get it in your mind being in such a dark place? How do you put, you know, yourself forward every single day? Um, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, to be honest with you, there's sometimes that I'd go through a day and my pain was really bad or be bad for several days on end where the only thing I looked forward to was every three hours I get my shot of morphine. Um, that's, and then I just knew that, you know, like I said earlier, I think the really thing that got me through it is that I know that there was something more for my life. I know that, I know that God didn't let me go through all this. And, you know, without passing, without some sort of, um, without some sort of purpose or something I need to do, I think that that's really what the main thing that got me through it um, at first. Um, you know, and then, you, you know, I mean, spent 11 months in the hospital without being able to even get out of bed. I mean, that's, it's not, not fun. I, I didn't, I don't even have the words to describe it. Um, but, you know, when I did get out of the hospital, I did start, I, I pushed myself pretty hard. I, it was, um, if I can tell you a really quick thing that happened that really absolutely changed, <clears throat> sorry, that really changed my attitude around is that my, when I got out of the hospital, I was in physical therapy. Um, I was still in a hospital, but changed to the physical therapy area. And, uh, you know, they kept getting me up for to go through physical therapy and things like that. And I didn't want to. My pain was so bad. I didn't want to move. Um, I was extremely depressed. And. I didn't even participate. And then I was sitting in my room and this guy came in there. Remember I told you that all I could think about was being a 70 pound, you know, chrome chair. Well, this guy rolled into my room, um, prior service guy. And I saw this like really cool looking chair. It was aluminum then, and, you know, of course now they're made out of carbon fiber and everything else. But, and he rolled into my room and he's like, Hey, you know, when you get better, we got a wheelchair basketball team. We play basketball and do all sorts of things. And when you get better. Maybe you can practice with us. And I'm like, really y'all play basketball? Like I never even heard of it, you know? And, um, and I just, um, you know, that, that alone gave me hope. And I, I wish, you know, I remember this guy's name. I wish that somehow I could meet him again. And, and I know he's in the book, but he has no idea that just that few minutes that I'm spending with me completely turned my life around because the next day I didn't start going to physical therapy once a day. I started going three times a day and it was be people where they'd stick me in a chair and I start rolling a person behind me, usually able-bodied person, like my my PT 
physical therapist or family members. But, you know, after, uh, after a couple of weeks, because I went from 185 pounds to 129 pounds when I got in there. I lost so much weight, my body being in shock. But, you know, by the end of the week, I was pushing like 10 people in chairs around. It would be like a big train behind me, you know, and I just, you know, it was kind of just, I think that was a point where I really just thought that maybe I can't have a life from a chair. And, um, and that guy just spent a few minutes with me, just changed my whole outlook on life. I'll, I'll never forget it. I want to ask one other thing before we get into some other stuff. When your kids come to see you for the first time, when your boys come see you, you talk a lot in there that you looked like the same dad from the waist up. They recognized you, things like that, except for one of your, your boys. Yeah. What are you thinking, though, when you see him the first time? Because in your brain, you know they're seeing you as a normal dad, but you know immediately that you're not that dad still. Yeah, you know, at first, all I did is just want to see him. It had been several months before I'd seen any of them. So, um, but as, you know, I started to see him more and more. Yeah, that thought was always in my mind, like, how am I going to be the dad that I, I, I will never be the dad I once was. I mean, everything's changed. I mean, the going to the playgrounds and playing in the, I mean, you can't even play in the front yard anymore. You know, if it's, you know, if you in a chair and you play football, it's in the street, not the safest place for toddlers to play, you know? So yeah, that was um, in the back of my mind is that how can I be a dad again to these kids? I mean, they, it's one thing for my paralysis and my injuries to affect myself. It's another thing to affect your innocent kids. You know, that was, that was really tough for me to grasp. And, I thought about it a lot when I was there alone in the hospital thinking about, you know, what can I, how can I be a dad in this condition? And I knew I could, I just got it, had to figure out how. Did you ever think about too, uh, how you were going to explain everything to them? Cause I know you waited a long time before you told them the story of what actually happened to you, but was that ever a thought in your mind? Like, how am I going to explain this? How am I going to explain that? Maybe I can't go do this or I can't go do this. Cause you mentioned it a couple times in the book. Do, is that ever a thought in your head? Um, yeah, they took it a lot better than I thought they would. I think I got um, really worked up over something that wasn't quite as a big deal. They were just happy to see me and just happy to be on the, you know, I don't think they also fully understood what was going on either. That, that might've made it a little bit easier for them being, you know, at the young age that they were. What about uh, the wife when you when you see her? I, I want to kind of talk how things deteriorate while you're going through all this because it seems so strange to me in the book that it would um, the the way it happened. Can we can we talk about that and and we'll go as far as you want to or as in depth of it as you want to. But I would really like to understand that relationship. Well. Um you know, when you're, when you're married, it's, it's supposed to be forever, no matter what happens, you know, but I think to, um, understand it fully, I was not the same person anymore. Not only I was, um, with that pain, I was, um, taking a lot of pain medication all the time. Um, my state of mind was not the cheery, thoughtful, go get them, Jason, that, that normally was. So there was a lot of things about me differently, but, um, but that's to be expected, you know, and you think that, I like to think if that happened to my spouse, that that's something we could work through and together as a team, because that's what you are as a team. Um, she just no longer wanted to be a part of that team. You know, she felt like, um, I don't deserve this. You know, what have I done to deserve a husband who's now, 
you know, paralyzed from the waist down. I think that's the way that she felt about it. And, um, you know, became, um, as people would become, as I did too, you become pretty selfish in, in that kind of state of mind. You know, it's, um, cause I was thinking, shoot, I mean, look what happened to me. I'm not even concerned about the way you feel about it. I, I was like that with my parents and family and everyone, you know, I, I don't think I really realized until the book came out of how much my family went through while I was, while I was in that state. But, you know, with my marriage, it was, um, you know, I was in the hospital for three and a half out of my first seven years. And I was in the hospital at one time for 11 months and I was pretty excited to come home. But all I could think about was like, you know what, I, I'm going to be the best father and the best husband I can from a chair. I'm not, I'm not going to let my chair be an excuse and I will figure this out. We will figure this out. Um, but kind of went out of attitude. I didn't know that she had already given up on our marriage and was, uh, already looking elsewhere. Um, you know, when I found that out, I was about three or four weeks from coming home and she had told me that, um, you know, when you come home, you, I'll give you a few months, but you need to find a new place to live. Cause I had met someone and who was already staying at our house and then I met someone and, um, and you just need to, you know, we'll wait till you get you know, healthier and, and, but you need to find another place to live. Um, that was, that came unexpectedly. I, I probably should have known better because I hadn't been seeing her lately as much. And, um, knowing the statistics, you know, if I'd have known then that like 90% of people that have an injury like mine go through a divorce, you know, I probably could have seen the writing on the wall, but I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it there till the very end. And, you know, when that happened and I'll just, I think she forgot what a fighter I was. I didn't get into position in the unit that I was in for just, you know, doing nothing about stuff. I, I had to fight for everything that I had. And so I just put it this way, at the end of the two months when I was supposed to move out after I got home, it was her and her boyfriend that moved out. And I stayed there with the house and with the kids. And that was a battle that I needed to win because I think if I didn't get the kids and I would have lived by myself with the amount of pain and depression that I had, I, I don't know what would happen. I don't even want to think about it. But from then on, it's like, I need to be here for my boys. That was my focus in life. At least then that I had a, um, I guess, a goal in mind. You know, I had a responsibility. It wasn't just about me. And um, in, in a way, I'm very fortunate that it, it happened like that. It, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise, as hard as that may sound. No, no. The questions that came to my mind while it's going on in the book, I think, wow, that first it's unconscionable when you think about it, what you're going through. And now that you look back on it, you see a different perspective. But when that happens, are you bitter? Are you angry? Are you just trying to figure out, like, man, can I catch a break? What is going on, once again, thinking going on through your mind? Um, you know, I think at first it was like, you know, I'm just, like you said, I, I can't catch a break, you know. and um, But then after really thinking about it and um, – you know, because I was like, how am I going to take care of three young boys when I can barely even take care of myself? Um, but you know what? I just knew it was going to be okay. I had a strong supporting family that was going to, talk about my, my parents and brother and sister, and one that was going to help me out as much as they possibly could. And um, I relied pretty heavily on them at first. Um, you know, and, you know, thinking back on it, it's hard enough being a dad as it is. And I think about it being a single dad, having the kids on your own. Then I think about being a paraplegic and having kids and being on your own. I mean, that's just, 
Um, but, you know, I, I think that all the training I had in special operations and going through that kind of trained me for this very important role that I had. And um, so at first I was saying I can't catch a break. But then at the end, it's like I'm I'm going to make the best out of this. I'm going to be successful despite what's happened to me and the circumstances that I've gone through. And, and that was my question. Is that out of spite almost? Is that just showing like that is the thing that gets you through? That's the mental toughness. Like I will show you just like when you talk about running the marathon, just like when you talk about all these other things, there were a lot of parts in the book where you're, you say, I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's probably more true than I want to imagine. Do I want to realize that? Yeah. I probably did it out of spite. Like, you know, you think you, hurt me and broke this family, but you, you didn't even come close. Just, you know, just like when someone says I can't do something, I just want to do whatever I can to do it just to prove them wrong. I mean, I just, I don't know. I don't know why I get um, a thrill out of that or that gives me momentum or whatever it might be. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much a large part of it. So how many surgeries are we talking about right now that we're at um, and hospital stays total time that we're talking about right now because we still haven't even gone over to South America to do the other surgeries, correct? Oh, I, I would, I'd have to say I've been in the hospital. Um, that was the first couple of years. I'd say that I've been in the hospital at least seven or eight months out of the first few years. Um, probably 20 surgeries maybe by then. Um, yeah, my guess major surgeries. Now you told the doctor that you would walk again. You told a bunch of people that you would walk again. You looked around for these therapies. And I want to talk about this South American when you went back over almost, which was crazy to me also, yeah. when you went almost to the exact spot to get this surgery. Um, when you hear about this surgery, when you hear about this doctor, and let's talk about this doctor for a minute. Does it change your whole outlook on life? Because you see that there really is a possibility that maybe you will, because with all these other surgeries that have happened, there's not been any change. You would agree other than the physical therapy and stuff, but as for walking, as for standing up again, those really aren't existing, right? Right. So when you hear about this, once again, let's go back into mind state. You hear it. There is a very good possibility that I could stand, that I could walk, that I could have that normal life again. Yeah, well, it's, um, don't get me wrong, it's it's walking, but it's definitely not close to being any type of normal life. But just to be able to get up and walk a little bit here and there and just, you know, um, it's huge. It's it's bigger than huge. And, um, you know, I saw a guy that went through the surgery and, and yeah, and that's... Um, that again, you know, hope was a big thing in my life. And that, that gave me a lot of hope. Um, we had studied about him and, and um, talked to some people that he performed the surgeries through. And we felt like it was definitely uh, a risk worth taking. So let's talk about as you do this, because this is by no means a normal kind of surgery. This is not under normal circumstances. And your Is anything mother, in my life. <laughs> that, 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 very yeah. true. I will give you that. But your mother takes some huge risks to do this. And this goes back to that thing that we've talked about from the very beginning of this. You had people at points in your life that without them, this life that you live now is not even possible. And this was to hear this part of the story and the things that your mom did 
can we just talk about that and what you had to go through just to get this surgery? We did. So once we uh, found out that we had a spot um, for the surgery, we then had to um, to raise a $25,000 for the surgery, which my mom and sister did a silent auction and a little benefit that they raised it in like two weeks, which is just unbelievable. Um, but in order for us to um, to have the surgery, we had to bring the money down to Ecuador. And when you, I think that's the risk you're, you're kind of talking about is that, you know, when you go to a, um, a drug state like Ecuador, having $25,000 wrapped around your waist is probably not the best idea to do, but, um, but that's what my mom did. Um, you know, it was, um, you know, they, they sacrificed everything for me, you know, and there, there was nothing that they wouldn't do, um, um, to help me, you know, that's kind of the way our, our, our family is. Um, and then to find out that, you know, when I went back there and it was in Quito, Ecuador, close to a town called Kumbaya, when I met the missionary that saved my life, um, out my window, we could see the pass that I broke my back on, right? I mean, I could see it right from laying on my hospital bed. Um, you know, but even, you know, it's almost comical, but I, I remember even getting to the hospital or getting to the airport to go there was, um, adventure in itself when my, um, I was still married at the time, barely. And my, um, we, she puts my wheelchair in the back of my truck, in the back of our truck, and she's driving. And uh, she forgot to put the tailgate down. And all of a sudden I look back in the truck and I didn't see my wheelchair there. And obviously freaked out. It's the only chair I had. And now I'm getting ready to catch a flight to go to Dallas where I was going to meet my parents where they lived and then go to uh, Quito, Ecuador. So we drove back and found out my wheelchair was sitting on top of train tracks, just like someone just left it there. Thank God a train didn't come by or anything else and picked it up and away we went. But it was just like, wow, it just, um, you know, just thinking about all that is, um, it, it's crazy, you know, and, and, um, you know, the risk we took and having the money. And then I remember getting over to, uh, Kumbaya and we were weathered out and had to go, uh, somewhere, you know, several hundred miles away to a different city and fly back in the morning. And, you know, that's before cell phones were really, so we didn't really know if the people that were supposed to pick us up were going to be there the next day when we drove at the airport and which they were there and, and found us. But, you know, and then, uh, and I remember going from the airport to our hotel room with, um, I'd have so many things, a medical equipment, a wheelchair. I remember this guy just, um, you know, when we got delayed to another airport, um, because when we were going to land, they had a van to pick us up and take us, we we're taking us straight to the hospital where we were staying at. But when we, uh, there was fog and we had to divert somewhere else the night before. And I remember this guy putting all this stuff in this little cab and tying my wheelchair on top of the roof. And I was just like, oh my God, this is not happening. Okay, then, yeah. What just happened to the wheelchair? That can't be good. I know. I just kept trying to look over the top of the, you know, <laughs> see if it was still there. And anyway, we got there and my mom's like, yeah, I need a drink. And she goes like, I'm sorry, but it was like up several steps. I'm like, don't worry, mom. I'll, I need one too. We'll, we'll get me up there. I found a couple of people to pick up my chair. And yeah, we had a well-deserved drink that night, but, but it all worked out. You know, it just... You know, it's so many crazy stories. You almost think you write a book about it, right? Yeah, you would think so. Here's another thing I want to point out. When you find out that you've got to go, almost like we said, to the to the scene of the crime, uh, what's going on when you think about that? Like, man, I'm going back there. And not only going back to the country, I'm going back 
to where I can see actually where it happened to me. Does that mess with your mind at all? No, and mostly I was pretty excited to go back there because I knew I was going to meet the missionary, save my life, because I do not remember when he, um, during the accident at all. So I was really excited about that. I mean, I get to meet the guy that saved my life, you know. Um, my mom, um, you know, went with me and, you know, it's kind of interesting to show her kind of where we were at and what we we're doing. We weren't really close to where we were at. I mean, I operate, we operated in the remote jungles, but, um, of course, one thing that scared me a little bit later is that I found out my mom was telling everyone that, oh, my son was here on a special operations mission where he got hurt. And, fought. and it, as soon as I found that, I was like, mom, my gosh, you cannot tell people that. Like, I'm sitting ducks over here in this unsecured clinic that we were at. And I was like, you cannot tell anybody that as much as you want to. I mean, if somebody found out we were here, it would be it would be really bad. But, um, you know, I forgot to brief her. Safety briefing. Well, you know. well, you know, it happens sometimes. It Moms does. get excited. Uh, let's talk about the actual surgery itself. Um, what was the point of it? What was supposed to happen? And then what actually did happen with it? So what it was is to take um, stem cells out of my body. And stem cells are basically stems without a purpose. They're cells that can be supposedly manipulated into a different cell to to take that place, I guess, to... Um, and so I was having stem cell surgery. They're going to put stem cells in my back where my where I no longer had a vertebrae. There was about a one or two millimeter gap where I had no spinal cord at all. Um, another thing that he was going to do was open back up my back in that area. It's where the spinal fluids would be able to 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 go freely through my back. So that was that was what he did. Um, the goal of that surgery was to have me to be able to stand up and and start walking. I I wouldn't have any really movement. Um, like below my mid thighs, but I'd have enough with special boots and stuff where I could where I could start walking, and that was, um, yeah, that that was the goal. When this actually happens, and uh, he tells you to to move, I think what happened was they he told you to bring up your leg, um, your knee towards you in the bed. Is that am I saying that right? Yeah, I think so. I I believe so. Yeah. When this happens, and you actually see your leg move, and it hasn't moved in so long. Uh, is it tears? Is it happiness? Or is it just you going back into grind mode and going, okay, that's happened. Now we're on to the next one. And now we need to make this work even more. Yeah, I think it was the latter. I think it was going back into grind mode and saying, this has happened. What more can I, can I make happen? I mean, it was, it's definitely exciting. I think it was more emotional for my mom seeing it than, than myself, but, um, I'm a pretty determined individual. So I just, I think it was like, I saw that, okay, let's, what else can we do? Let's push on and, and, um, see what the, the true limits, you know, the surgery or, or what, you know, what, what we can still do or what we can do now because of the surgery. Now there's still trouble that came from that. Um, can we talk about some of the trouble that came from it? Uh, sure. Yeah. Kind of lead us on the road because in all, in all areas, it looks like everything is going to be fine. Uh, it looks like this is really going to work, that that everything, like you said, you can go back into grind mode and push on. But what happens that kind of sets you back again? Um, I think you're talking about the pressure sores or? Yeah. Or not, or, yeah. Yeah, just it's so common for a paraplegic to develop a, a pressure sore. Um, it's just being able to, you're laying on a certain area for a long time. And like if you're sitting down for a long time, you can feel it and you'll shift. Well, I have no feeling there and I can't shift. 
also being a paraplegic, we have poor blood circulation, so that's it's compounded. And um, yeah, I got a really really bad pressure sore, which landed me back up in the, in the hospital for quite a while. Um, I've been fighting pressure sores my my whole life for the last two decades. You know, it's frustrating, but it, it's it's part of it. Do you see any change coming with that? Because that 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 really seemed to me in the book that that set you back more even more mentally than physically. Um, yeah, it did. And, and of course, you know, now I know how to handle them better. I know how to treat them better. Um, I look for them more. I do certain things, try not to get them. So, I mean, that situation is definitely um, improved quite a bit. But, yeah, it just seemed like when I had this pressure sore, they could not get rid of it. And I just, it's like one surgery after another and one surgery flap after another. And you'd wait six weeks and find out, you know, when you're about ready to go home, it wasn't successful and they got to do it again. That happened multiple, multiple times, you know, in the six weeks it wasn't healed and they'd start all over again. It was, it was like this endless thing. It was extremely frustrating. Talk about the darkest days that you had and when you think you had them, because there were different moments during the book that I thought they were. And then I would hear something else and be like, Nope, that's it now. And then I'd hear something else and Nope, that's it now. So where do you think that the darkest days happen with you with all of this going on? You know, I, I think I would have to say it was probably during that time of the the pressure sores when I just, I couldn't get out of the hospital. I couldn't get on with my life. And I just felt like I was just stuck in this timeless era with just severe pain and just not being able to do anything. Um, and then knowing, you know, that's when I ended up getting the, uh, the divorce. So I think it was... Um, yeah, that was probably one of the, the darkest times. I might think of something else here by the, by the end of this podcast, but it seems to me that was that was one of the pretty toughest times. The reason I ask that is because you bring up a point in the book uh, that at a time you were on a plane and it was pretty turbulent on the plane. And you saw all these people around you that were, you know, freaking out about the turbulence and you were of the mind state, I mean, point blank, that you didn't care if it crashed, if the plane went yeah. down. So it went down and that's just the end of it. Why worry about it? I, I've got to understand that mentality because that that's a, that's a pretty far reach, even with everything that you've been through, because at no point in the story, even when I saw those dark times, did I see you giving up on them. And at that point in the book, I see you kind of, you're like, I'm done fighting. I'm, I'm done with all of this, if it happens, it happens. I'm not going to fight it anymore. You know, I think it was just, um, that was the time I was going through some of my worst pain and the pain was so bad. I'd go like three or four days without sleeping. And yeah, I remember I was on a plane and, and like you said, we just had this severe turbulence and there was like audible gas and screens. It was so bad. And I just, I just wasn't any concern. I just, yeah, I was, the mindset that if this plane goes down, I don't, I don't even care. Yeah. And it, it's hard to believe I was actually in that type of, it, it's hard. It, I don't know. It's with everything that happened, it's hard not to believe, but the way I am now and how positive I am thinking about it now, it, it's kind of hard to believe that I was actually in that state, but, but I was there. It just seemed like every light at the end of the tunnel was like an oncoming train, you know, it just, yeah. you know, I'd get better, get through one thing and then, you know, get her right in the face again with, you know, you got to realize I had probably over 50 major surgeries and, you know, spent, you know, three and a half to four years in the hospital total time. That's, that's a long time. Um, yeah, it's, 
you know, and, and I, I just, like I said, the only thing when I was in those long hospital stays I looked forward to was just, I can't wait till I get my shot of morphine to, to help with the pain and doze me out a little bit. And, you know, you got to realize I got hurt fighting the war on drugs and I'm very against, you know, illegal drugs and stuff, but that's just kind of the state I was in, you know? Well, I want to ask you too, when you're in that state, cause you've always said you wanted to be there for your kids. You wanted to be that dad. You, you did things out of spite, like we said, to show that you would be that good dad. And then you get into that phase. When you look back on it now, I don't want to use the word embarrassing. Is it embarrassing to you? But when you look back on it, is there any kind of thoughts that go through your head? Like, man, I cannot believe I was ever in that state. Or are you good with it? And you're like, man, that's just the way it goes. Because that may, if you can tell people about that, that may help someone that's at that stage right then. Yeah, I think looking back at it, um, it's not so much um, me being in that state was embarrassing. I think um, I think the fact is that I got out of that state is, is such a great thing because a lot of people don't. You know, there's 22 veterans a day that, that take their life, and a lot of them are in pain or have paralysis or injuries like myself, including the two guys that got hurt with me. So, um, so I guess it's better... I think it's um, not surprising to be in that type of state, especially not just the paralysis and the divorce and the pain is what really got to me, you know, but I think it's looking back that it's just um, proud of myself that I got out of it that I shook that funk or that when well, it was more than just a funk, but, you know, shook that and, and, um, and, uh, and, and got myself through it. I, I didn't do it by myself, but I did get through it. When you see guys in that state now, do you recognize it immediately or do you still need to dive a little deeper until you see it? Um, it's really hard to see, even though I've been there, because guys that are in a situation like that, like myself, because no one really knew it until they read the book, you know, even being around me, they didn't realize I was in that type of state. It's, excuse me, it's hard to spot because um, people like myself try to hide it so much, you know. Yeah, usually uh, spending time with them, I can... I can catch it pretty quickly. It's I can't see it at first, but spending some time with them usually I can, yeah, I can I can find out just by asking them certain questions and different things. So it's kind of feel like that's one of my my life's missions right now. Another point that I want to bring up about the movie and I want to excuse me about the book that I want to talk to you about is um, you talk about I guess you would say ignorance a lot, ignorance of people about your condition, about what you're able to do, about what you're able to not do. But here's what stood out to me. And even when you answered the question a little earlier, when you talked about the guy that came into your room and told you about the basketball and you were like, you guys play basketball in a wheelchair? With all of that ignorance, do you think before this injury, before you were there, do you think you were that guy that was just ignorant to what was going on around? And, and I think a ton of people are guilty of it do you think you were that guy before you were put into the situation i probably would like to admit that but yeah i i definitely think so you know if, if i saw someone and i didn't know i could you know obviously see that they have a disability but didn't know exactly what it was i think i would just um feel better if i just kind of shied away from it just so i didn't embarrass myself or embarrass someone else or whatever but it just seemed easier yeah i was i was probably definitely one of those guys 
Right. So when you look back on that now, and, and I love some of the stories that you brought up about it, like when you would get out of your car and people thought that it was a seeing eye dog that you had with you <laughs> and that somehow the dog had driven the car. There were uh, multiple things, not being able to go into restaurants, not being able to go into Walmart. There were tons of times that you talk about it in the book. When you look back at all that now and then you look back at the guy you were, is that also what helps you kind of get through that and get over those? Because you talk about that the dog helped you very much see the funny side of things or be able to overlook the small things. But do you also think that you kind of gave those people grace thinking about where you came from before this? Uh, yeah, I do. As, as frustrating as it was, yeah, I, I, I did. But, you know, but there's sometimes when you're going to a restaurant and because you have a service dog, and this is before all the you know, there's a lot more service dogs now. There sure was very little in, in 2010. And of course, you know, there's a fake service dog. That's a whole nother podcast. But when you bring a dog to a restaurant, a highly trained dog that is under the table that no one sees and they tell you you have to leave. I mean, that that's, yeah, that's, that's it frustrating, but you know, it, very frustrating. But, you know, a lot of times I try to use it to educate them. But when they just didn't get it or just didn't even try and just like, I don't care what you say, you're leaving. Yeah, that's, Oh, yeah, those were very frustrating times, you know, um, to say the least. You know, it's like I have a hard enough time with life as it is, and now you're going to try to keep me from going into play. You know what? I, it, it made me feel what, uh, you know, I think there's very few people that actually, you know, experience true prejudice. And and I did, whether it was out of ignorance or not, and being denied places was 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 not fun, not fun at all. Do you think you look at people differently now? In general, do you look at people differently now? Well, I definitely look at, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, talk about, you know, not judging a book by its cover. I mean, when I, you know, when I see someone, I, I um, especially like with people with, I think more so with disabilities, because I understand them, stand it better. But, you know, if I see a kid not knowing if he's going to talk or not, I'll talk to him like he can talk because, you know, I, I've had guys where they've had traumatic brain injuries and they can't talk very well. And people think that their um, their brain injury causes them not to process things, that they're very slow. And it, it's so frustrating to him to think and that they have to talk to him like a first grader. So I'd rather someone be, I'd rather be the wrong way and think the best of them than, than to be the other way around it. You know, like, you know, when people, sometimes they talk to me in a loud voice, I don't know why they, you know, cause I'm in a chair, they think I'm, I'm deaf or something, you know? <laughs> Um, you, yeah, you I always, mentioned that. Uh, yeah, it's it's crazy, but you know, yeah, I always try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, and not really a benefit of the doubt. I just don't want to. I guess I don't want to assume anything, you know. And I want to treat everyone the same, no matter what condition, state of mind, who they are. It, it doesn't matter. I treat everyone, everyone the same. And if they're not the same, and then so be it. But you know. With this, I want to talk about you actually getting the dog because I think this dog changed your life. I mean, from a, a cellular level, it changed your life. So let's talk about the big part of the book and let's talk about Nepal and and what he meant to you and kind of how he changed your life. Because I think that, like I, like I said before, I think he changed it at a cellular level, your life, and you became a whole different person than you were at the beginning of this book. Yeah, I felt like I went from, um, 
invisible to a, a superhero. That's kind of the change that it made. I mean, I went from going places that people not knowing why you're in a chair would just ignore you and leave you alone and give you a wide berth and talk to you funny or not talk to you at all. Um, and to people trying to help you do the little sayings where like if you're getting something yourself and someone like insists on doing it for you and, you know, it's like, uh, or push it or, or just going up behind me. Like they'll start pushing my wheelchair for just not even asking, just pushing my chair. And it's like, I don't feel comfortable someone pushing my chair. Nobody likes being pushed around. Right. But I mean, I absolutely, it's get like, that. I want to be able to control where I'm going. I, it's not that, and I, it's not that I don't appreciate them trying to help. It's just, you're not helping. You're making things much worse. And, you know, I went from that to when I got my dog, it was just like, everybody noticed me. Everyone wanted to find out about this incredible dog that was pulling me, that was picking up things that I dropped. It was picking up his, picking out his own toys from the toy section, the dog section of Walmart. You know, it was, it's like everyone wanted to check out my dog. And then in return, everyone wanted, got to hear me and my story. It just made me like I was, like I said, I went from invisible to like the superhero where everyone wanted to meet me and knew who I was and got to hear my story. It was, it was life changing in that, in that way. Um, life changing that anyone in my condition, what you want is more independence. You know, you have to rely on people for everything and for the littlest things. So when you have a dog doing it, of course, of course it's much easier to ask a dog than a person to do it. But not only, and then I gained my independence back, but then I just had this incredible animal i don't even call him an animal but this incredible person at my side all the time that just knew me that knew what i was going through that um that would always i mean he was just like my dog now he, he keeps looking over here making sure i'm okay wondering who i'm talking to but um I'll, I'll bring him up here in a minute but you know he's always wanting to make sure hey can i do something for you i'm, I'm here for you if you just want to pet me or let me love on you or whatever. It's just, they're just always there for you. And, you know, I, I think people with pets, even with pets I really had or had for a long time, can't even realize the bond that I have with my dog. Cause I'm with my dog more than 24 seven. I'm always with my dog. I'm with my dog more than my own kids and with my wife. Um, I mean, this dog is with me everywhere I go and, and it's always beside me. So it's the bond that you make is just incredible. It's, it's incredible. It's indescribable. Did you ever think that was possible? When people started talking to you about getting a service dog, did you look at it as, all right, that might be nice to have something to help to, to, and, and help, I mean, in a lot of different ways to give you right. that companion, to give you help around the house. But did you ever dream that it was possible that it would make this big of an impact? I had no clue not even close. I mean, it, uh, you know, I've always been a dog lover and love dogs. And I thought, I'd be cool to have a dog to be able to do some things for me, but I had no clue what this dog could do for me. I was just, um, I, I'm sometimes I'm still amazed at what this, you know, it's been now what 13 years since I had my first service dog and I've had a dog ever since that what these dogs still do for me and what they can do for me. It still amazes me, but yeah, I was clueless. Do you see the same thing with other people? Because you recruit a lot to come over to get service dogs. You you sign a lot of people up to get them into the program with uh, CCI. Um, do you see the same kind of thing with them? And, and how is your, when you're explaining it to them, it can't help but after reading the book, think that you are just ecstatic when you're explaining what this animal can do for them. 
Yeah, because as most veterans who really need the service dogs that they're thinking, oh, I don't want to take a dog from someone else. I've probably heard that a million times, you know, just because that's the type of guys that, that we are, that they are, you know, and, and I tell them, it's like, do you want to get better? Really? Do you want to get better? And like, well, do you want to improve your quality of life? And obviously they're going to say yes. I'm like, then trust me and get a service dog. Just trust me. And, um, and those that do it have, have no regrets. You know, I mean, it's, it's an instant life changer. And, you know, I mean, it's a, used to be a, can, a CCI, Canine Companions for Independence. They changed it to Canine Companions. And they're just one of the, you know, there's a, there's a few really good organizations out there that put out these high quality dogs that, that uh, you don't have, you don't have to pay for. They're, they're free for the recipient. And they were, we're talking like a $50,000 dog that had been trained for, um, for two years that knows over 50 commands. I mean, we have to go to school for two weeks to learn everything the dog can do for us. You know, that's how, that's how amazing they are. But, but like I just mentioned earlier, and I tell them it's not just, it's not just the tasks and stuff and the independence they give you. It's a, it's just a bond that you have with your dog and being able to take that dog anywhere that you go. And, and just, um, like my dog knows when I'm really hurting and I'll just rest his head on my leg. It's kind of like saying, I'm here for you, buddy. I mean, he does that all the time. He, he knows, um, when I'm hurting and he, and he treats me differently when I am hurting, you know, he's more loving and, and, um, more affectionate as he could be more affectionate, but, it, but he is, it's, it's amazing. I'm glad you brought that up about the two weeks of going to the school to learn all the commands and stuff. This is not a joke when you get these dogs. Like, they pair you. The reason I bring that up is because you talk about in there that there were two dogs before um, before you received Nepal. It was Nepal and another dog. And you thought, really, you were going to get this other dog. Um, but the trainers matched you with Nepal. Let's talk about those trainers and how they look so deeply into this and know this is going to be the perfect fit because they've done it uh, multiple times for you. Yeah, they haven't. So, you know, before you get there, they learn a lot about you. They learn a lot about what your disability is, what things that you're going to need to help with that you think the dog can help you with and kind of like your lifestyle, you know, are you a real active person or not? And, um, and they know the dogs very well. And, and when you, do your application they know quite a lot about you as well they know the dogs because they've been working with the dogs for a long time so you know you got to realize that every dog is trained the same but they all have different temperaments and and characteristics and you know and um and react different ways so you know they you work with like two or three dogs that they think is going to be a good fit for you and they they monitor very closely to see how you interact with the dog how well the dog listens and and uh, does your commands, um, how, um, I think they can already kind of see if there's could be a, a bond there. So, you know, they look at all these things in just a three or four short days. Um, and it's absolutely amazing because, you know, I've now got my third service dog and every single time I wanted a different dog and every single time I just can't imagine having a different dog and so thankful that they didn't let me pair the dog with who I wanted to be with because, um, uh, they, they just know. It's amazing. When you get Nepal and you bring him home for the first time um, and and he starts doing what he does, because, of course, you see that during the training and things like that. But when you bring him home and you guys start forming that bond uh, right away and it went, I mean, immediately, you guys went to a hotel and stayed there while you were still in the school, correct? 
Yeah, they had their own like um, their own cabins. Yes, but it was like a right. little hotel room, right? Right. So y- your bond starts right there. But when you come right. home and you actually see this put into real life, because even their training, that's not real life. That's not day to day. What you're really right. going to face with your boys and stuff. Are you just blown away and amazed at how well this dog comes in and just immediately starts doing what they're supposed to do? Yeah, I am. Like I said, it's been, uh, uh, you know, 13 years or so, and I'm still amazed every day at some of the things that they do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing how they can pick up on things that you never even think that they would, that they would know about. You know, I mean, you know, like with my dog that I have now, Yago, I mean, I drop something, he might be, um, usually he's almost always in the same room with me, but not all the time. And um, he hears something drop, he runs in there to see if I need anything. Or if I make a noise or something, he runs in there to see if I need help. And if he sees something on the ground, I don't even get the command, he picks it up and puts it in my lap. And um, But yeah, right from the beginning, just um, the things that they pick up on and, and um, how they help you. And, you know, because you're trying to think like how, you, you've been thinking about this for a long time, ever since they been selected to get a dog you know like six months before like how can this dog help me what my life be like with a dog but you really have no idea until you bring them home and you just put them into your day-to-day just put them right in the right you just throw them into your daily life you know it's um yeah it's 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 amazing what they do what they sense upon what you know um stuff that they do that i never even thought that they could even help me with you know it's endless Another interesting thing about when you brought the dog home, um, you talk about having the dark days where you used to sometimes lay in your bed when the pain was so bad. You would lay in your bed, close the curtains, and that would kind of be it for the day. But you talk about Nepal coming into your room once an hour, excuse me, once an hour, once every two hours, kind of pushing you to get up, tell you it was time to go out and see the world, that it was time to go out and do the things that you know you needed to do. Can we talk about that and how you think your life would be different other than the very obvious reasons, how your life would be different without Nepal pushing you to be better because it leads into doing marathons and all those kind of things. Absolutely. And I will tell you hands down amazing things that you've done since you started this program. Uh, Can we talk about that and how Nepal pushed you along to be a better person? Yeah, well, you know, at first I just made kind of the deal was is that I'm going to make a point every day to go out and do something with my dog. And if I didn't have a dog, I never would have done that because sometimes I just didn't feel like it. I didn't get any sleep. I was in a lot of pain, but I always did that. And every time I got up to do something with my dog, it made my day better. It made whatever was going on better. Um, Yeah, Nepal, he was really good about he would um, he would stick his head on the bed like he'd rest his head on top of the the bed if I was still in bed and wouldn't get up and I'd try to like pet him or something. He'd move his head away where I couldn't pet him. He wouldn't let me pet him. And, um, it went until I got out of bed that he got excited. You know, he was just like, come on, dude, let's go. But yeah, I I made that vow to myself and stuck to it. And, um, but, um, yeah, the confidence, I think everything I did, I did better. The confidence I believe that I got because of my dog. I know that might seem silly to a lot of people, but, you know, I, I, I did a lot of things before my injury. I even did a lot of things after, but it wasn't until I got my dog, like you said, that I was able to do things that I never thought in a million years I could do. The um, Having the confidence and support and um, and just like I call him my battle buddy. You know, I mean, he's he's there with me. He's got my six all the time, you know. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know if you want me to go into detail about some of the things that happen or you want to lead on absolutely. that. Absolutely. No, absolutely I do. Yeah, well, you know, I was I went back into um, to sports a little bit when um, I think right before I got my dog, but then after I got my dog, I trained harder than I ever thought I could. I mean, I just, like I said, my confidence level was at an all-time high again, which is, um, you know, it's pretty surprising the way I think about it, how far I've, I've come just in a short amount of time. But I didn't just, you know, I started competing in the military Paralympics, you know, doing long-distance racing. Um, in the military Paralympics, I started swimming again. I started water skiing, snow skiing. Um, all these things I did after I got my dog and I know it sounds silly to think a dog helped me do it, but he did. Like I said, it was just, I can't stress this enough, the confidence that he gave me that I could just go out and achieve anything I wanted to do. I just felt like empowered, I guess, you know, I felt like I had this like secret weapon at my side that they gave me like this boost of energy and extra confidence and whatever else I needed to get through whatever I needed to get through. He was, he was it. When you're doing all this stuff, you had said a long time ago, you're going to run a marathon. That that was your big thing. When they said you would never walk again, you said, I'll not only walk, but I'll run a marathon. As we go on later in the book, you start training for a full marathon. Not only do you train for it, there's a couple setbacks along the way, um, but you actually do the marathon. I want to talk about training for the marathon, what that takes to get up every day and go train for a marathon, because... Training for a person uh, to do a marathon is a mind game. It's a physical game. It's all these different things compounded with everything that you're going through, the pain that you're going through every day. Talk about what it takes to get up every day and grind it out for training for that marathon. And then when you actually have some setbacks, when you do it and afterwards. Sure. So, um, you know, if you think if, if you're listening to this show and you're a runner and you want to do a marathon, it might not be quite as big as a deal. But imagine if you're a runner and then all of a sudden they stuck you in a wheelchair and they say, now do a marathon. You know, it's can't use your legs at all. Now, all of a sudden you got to push 26.2 miles with your arms. And so there's there's two ways. There's two different methods that a um, paraplegic or amputee or or quad person with a major disability can do a marathon. One of them is a hand cycle where they have a hand cycle, you know, with has a, the cranks and the 29 gears. Um, that's where 90% of the people that do the marathons that are disabled like me, that's what they do. Um, and then there's the people that do an actual push racer. There's no, it's an actual, it's a racing wheelchair, but there's no gears. I mean, you're, you're pushing your rims and you're pushing this chair, you know, the full 26.2 miles. So, you know, when I did this, I wanted to do it that way. I, I didn't want to just, you know, I don't think you could always bring a bicycle to a running race. I mean, I understand why people do it because it's so hard on your shoulders and stuff. You know, when you run, you're using the biggest muscles in your body, but you know, now you're trying to do it all with just your arms and it's really tough on your shoulders. And, you know, someone for like me, that if you have a torn rotator cuff, that could be a, almost a death sentence, you know, especially to an athlete. But, you know, this is, I want to do it in a push racer. So this great organization, um, uh, Winded Warriors for Family Support Group. It's not the Winded Warrior Project, totally different group. It's the Winded Warrior Family Support Group. And they saw some, there was some stuff written, articles written about me. And I did some short distance races, you know, like just track events, like the 100 meter, 200 meter, and maybe the mile on a good day. And they said, we want to 
sponsor you do the Marine Corps Marathon. And I said, well, you know, I'm Air Force, right? I'm not a Marine. They're like, yeah, yeah, as long as, as, long as you don't win it, we'll, we'll uh, train you. But no, um, but no they um, – so – that's the only reason I didn't win. I just want to make that very clear. On the oh, record. okay. All right, yeah. good. I was glad you pointed that out. Yeah, because I know you're wondering, why didn't you win this thing? But, right. Um, so, you know, so they, it was about five months away, and I'm like, man, I need, I need like the full five months to train for this thing. I'm not anywhere close to, you know, I barely even used a, a racing chair. And um, so they they were awesome. They, they paid for um, uh, a trainer for me and this, this incredible guy who was a, uh, he uh, was in the Marine Corps. Um, Billy owned a gym that he trained people in, and I met him, and he, he was my coach and my trainer. And, you know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of one of these that when they asked me to do it, I didn't want to just do a marathon. Like, I wanted to win it. That's just the kind of person I am. You know, it's like I don't want to just train enough where I can finish it. I want to be competitive. So he understood that. He pushed me really hard, and we trained um, – I think at least five days a week. We we're two or three hours in the gym. Um, I probably put in about twenty extra pounds just for my, just for my arms and shoulders, and back and chest, just to be able to to do this thing. And um, the training was going really good. I was um, I was sub eight minute miles when we did like our seventeen or nineteen mile uh, run. I guess roll for me, but because um, we would do every so often, you had like the schedule set out where. Every so often we'd do a, a distance run and see what your times were. And in between that, we're doing a lot of just um, upper body workout and different things like that and just building it up and cardiovascular stuff. So we had this, um, things were going good. And about six weeks before the marathon um, hit, um, I got a, um, a blister on my on my heel. And all of a sudden I woke up overnight and it was four times the size it was supposed to be. Um, it was, um, when I saw it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like really, it, it, it wasn't just one. I mean, my leg from my, like my mid shin all the way down to my toes was, was probably triple the size. I wish I had a picture to show. I do, but if you could see a picture of it, it was just, it was crazy. So anyway, I went there and they found out, um, that I had a bone infection and saw the doctor and he said that, um, all you need is, um, you know, we'll scrape the infected bone off your heel, put a flap on it, you'll be good to go. And I said, good, because I have this marathon that's really important to me. It's not just a marathon. Like, I've been training for this for a long time, and this is on my bucket list, and um, I just, I need to do this. Like, I really need to do this. And it's not a problem, you know, right? So I got my MRI done as he asked, and I went back to see him, and he said it's much worse than um, what I thought it was. That he goes, really, I'll give you two options. One is you can go in the hospital and we could try for a year with heavy antibiotics. Why not be able to save your leg? Because my recommendation is to uh, amputate your leg, which I just couldn't believe. And, you know, Christopher Reed died from a bone infection like mine. So it was something that to not take lightly. Um, so I, um, I had Nepal with me in the room and he left and I'll give you a few minutes to think about it. And you got a few minutes to think about if you're going to keep your leg or not, you know? Right. And, and now that I was walking a little bit, it was a lot bigger deal, you know, and um, actually it was a lot bigger deal than I ever thought it would ever be, whether I was in a chair or not. But um, so I left the room and, and um, Nepal just put his head up on my lap and he actually got up on my lap, which I didn't even give him the command to. And he just, he knew I was pretty upset. And um, it's kind of like, you know what, buddy, we can do this. And 
The doctor came back in. I said, you know, my decision is not to, I thought in my mind, my decision is not to keep my leg or not. I'm not going to risk dying and trying to hold on to my leg. And I'm sure not going to spend another year in the hospital. I've had way too much time in the hospital and that's, you know, I'm done with that. And so I said, my decision was, am I either going to go back in that dark place that I was in before? Because I really felt like this could, could do this for me as far as I've come. I said, or am I going to focus on my dream and still try to do this marathon? Wasn't sure if I could do it, but at least try, give it a go, you know? And, and, um, doctor came in, I said, you know what? I decided to take this leg immediately. I said, I have this marathon in like six weeks and I need as much time as I can. So he said, I don't know if you can do this marathon. It's a pretty extensive surgery. You know, you're, you're going to pretty much lose all the training that you've been in. You know I mean? The amount of blood loss, you know, maybe, you know, and just, um, blood fusion, all these different things. He was saying that it just, I just don't get your hopes up, but I'm like, is it possible? And he says, it is possible. And that's all I needed here. So, um, and even getting from that point to the hospital to get my egg tainted, you know, three days later was another feat in itself. But I know we only have so much time on your, on your podcast, but you know, I ended up having the, um, the amputation done. The doctors at, um, I was at Baylor Scott and White and the, which is local doctors over here. Baylor, they did this amazing job. They knew that I wouldn't do this marathon. They um, worked with me, did physical therapy with me right after it happened. They they gave me a brace that protected my leg, that covered my stitches so they wouldn't be so tender when I went back in the chair. And, and you know, I was, um, you know, when I first, I'll digress just a little bit here, but I put a blanket where my leg was after they amputated it when I woke up. I didn't want to see it, didn't want to deal with it. Um, after like the third day, they um, I, they had to change the, the dressing. And as soon as I saw my amputated leg, like I just lost it. Like I just started bawling and I got nauseous. And it was, um, I never thought it hit me that hard. I mean, just, but having a part of your body gone is a lot more, it affects you a lot more than just not being able to, to walk with your leg or use your leg, you know? And, um, but you know, I, I I bawled for like 15 minutes and I said, okay, you know what? I've greeted it. I'm over. Let's continue. And, you know, and, you know, I still, I, I don't, um, with my leg being amputated, anytime that I see it, I, I never wear shorts because anytime I see my amputated leg, it's still like, it makes me a little nauseous. Like it just, I don't know, just a part of your body missing as people take it differently. Um, but for me, it's still a struggle when I see it sometimes, but, you know, I, I, um, 10 days later after my surgery, I was back in the, uh, in the gym training again and, um, went to Washington DC for the Marine Corps marathon. And I knew I wasn't anywhere close to where I was before my surgery, but I knew I was in definitely in good enough shape to, to finish this marathon. And of course, then we find out that hurricane Sandy's hitting the, the, uh, East coast, you know, the superstorm, And it was, um, I, I just like, are you serious? And, you know, and, and with my, um, um, trying to give you an example here real quick, but so with, um, with my regular wheelchair, so you, you, you grab the rims, it's hard to see here, but you grab your rims with your, you know, you put your arms around the rims and you grab them and you push your rims. So if it's raining or not, you know, it might slide a little bit, but it's not going to have that much effect. Um, but in my push racer, the way it works is that your, your hands are in these special made gloves that are, keep your fit, you keep your hand in a, in a fist clinch position and use your fist and you hit your your rims 
So instead of grabbing onto them, you, you know, when you push, you, you actually hit your rims with your fists. That way you can get the speed and stuff that you require and, and, um, to be able to do a marathon. And so obviously with it raining, your, your hands are just going to slide. So it made it twice as tough. I mean, we were finding this goop and spraying everything to make my hand, my, my gloves and my rims as sticky as possible. And, um, like 45 mile an hour headwinds going up a bridge. It was, I know some of my times were like four minutes and sometimes were it, sometimes it, I saw that where they were like 12 minute miles, which, you know, most people could walk faster than that. And, um, well, let's point out too, that you also didn't have your support team because there were bomb threats. There was a detour of their bus. They had to climb the flooding. side of an interstate to get the bikes yeah. to you. So there was a lot of stuff going on for you to finish yeah, yeah. this. It was, it was, but, um, I think just a little bit of determination and, and, um, you know what though, it was really cool that when I hit like mile marker 17 or 18, you know, I, man, I was struggling. I mean, my arms were hurting. I know that sometimes I was going to the winds, like into a headwind and uphill, I could barely even move. It'd be nice when I was with the wind, I could just almost, the wind would just push me. I wouldn't have to, to push. It was, it was crazy. But, um, you know, I remember, um, I remember Bill that was um, there, and so I guess because he was my coach and because I was disabled, it actually gave him a bid number and everything too. He'd run like so many marathons and stuff, you know, as he straight from mine, him and his wife. And he actually, when he couldn't get to me, he actually jumped on the course ahead of me and uh, ran back to find me. And then we uh, we finished the race together. I mean, talk about amazing support, you know. And and he was yelling. You know, as we'd go by, the, the crowd, when you get closer to the end, you get a bigger and bigger crowd. And he was saying, hey, we got one of our wounded warriors here. Cheer him on. Everyone's cheering me on. It was it was amazing. And then um, then I know I got to see uh, Nepal at the finish line. One of my good friends is, is um, uh, a retired Secret Service guy, amazing guy. I think he's, he's in the in the book, too. But um, John, anyway, I know he's keeping my dog for me, and I couldn't wait to see my dog at the finish line, too. And you know, when, when I, um, you know, when, you know, it just seems like, you know, and especially, you know, my kids and, and their age and everything too, it seems like people are always trying to give you excuses not to do things, you know, and, and I know that if someone has said, Hey, don't do the marathon, I think, or if I said, I don't want to do the marathon, they would have said, Oh my gosh, you just had your leg amputated. I can't believe you're quitting. I mean, no one would obviously say that, you know, they would, they would be understanding, but you know, I just want to show that no matter what, you can you can push through things, and everyone tries to give you an out. You know, these days, and sometimes it's you know. But and I could have easily taken that. Um, but you know, when I finished this marathon, I felt like there was nothing I couldn't do. I mean, the feeling that I got when I finished that was just amazing. Even though I was hurting so bad, they had to pick me out of my chair and put me in the medical tent for two hours to ice my back because I couldn't even move. Even through all that, it was, um, it was one of the most amazing things that I've done since my injury. Is there anything before we get into kind of the final story of stuff you've done to bring people over to the canine companions? Um, is there anything that you wish, uh, you would have done that you haven't done yet? I, I mean, is there anything bucket list wise that you haven't done that you're, you're really set to do? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of looking for that next chapter of my life. I think I have to be realistic and knowing that I'm over 50 now and stuff, but, um, yeah. Um, no, there's, um, 
there's definitely some things that that um that I still want to do. I think um I think sports wise, I was wanting to do a um like a sprint tri or triathlon. I don't think that's just realistically that's going to be um possible. But now my focus is um is uh, got some newer goals now. Um, a dream of mine has always been to um, build a foundation for disabled veterans to give them the tools that they need. And um, we're well on the way doing that. So that's kind of my, been my dream of 15 years. It finally has um, come true that it's happening right now. That's that's uh, pretty exciting. And I, I had a couple of things I thought I was probably going to be doing, but I think right now, that's going to be my focus for now. I think that's where I'm needed and that's where I'm going to, going to, uh, to spend my energy. All right. So the last thing that, that I wanted to talk about, about things that you've done and where you've really helped bring people into the fold. Uh, you talk about a, a helicopter for heroes event that you went to. I think you signed up like three people to get service dogs there, but you also got to spend time with your son there. Um, can we talk a little bit about that event what it meant for you to see these other guys going through their own struggles and telling them, look, man, there's a better way. Like you said before, do you want to get better? Do you want to do this? Can we talk about that event, how you spent it with your son um, and how you bring these guys into the fold? Yeah. You know, that happened twice in my life and those were big turning points in my life. Um, Cause I was always one to kind of volunteer. Um, you know, when I got hurt, you know, this is before 9-11 and the uh, Winter Warrior Project and all these things didn't exist. So they didn't have things like that for us. And kind of when I felt like they did, I've been in share so long, I didn't think it would really benefit me too much, you know. But I thought it'd be good for me to to require my services for these newer guys with their injuries and stuff. And, um, you know, we went to one of those as a hog hunt from a helicopter ride. And, um, you know, I got to I got to bring my, my son. And, and that was kind of really cool because he um, – my son maybe have heard stories. He doesn't know about my military career. He didn't really know anything about it. We didn't really talk about it anymore, but it's kind of neat that when we did this helicopter hog hunt, you know, I was, um, they, uh, you know, hogs are a big nuisance here in Texas and, um, people almost pay you to get rid of them. And so they do a lot of things from the air and stuff. And I remember, um, you know, I, I can shoot from a helicopter. I mean, I was with the, you know, the, the night stalkers, like I told you about, I was in a helicopter unit and, um, so unlike most of the people, you know, I was able to get my, actually there wasn't enough time or enough fuel to bring my son aboard with me because they had a, a news crew with me too. And my son got kicked out at the last minute and then things changed around and, and um, we got to go for another ride and went with me. And for him to see me like do this things and do, um, you know, shoot this hog in just a few shots, which is kind of unheard of from a helicopter and, and kill it. And, you know, we're way above it. You know, it wasn't um, maybe not the best thing to take your kid to, but I mean, but, you know, it's cool to see my kid and to see me in action. You know, I mean, he always sees me from a chair doing these things, but to see me out doing things in a helicopter and doing these other things that we did over there and and, um, and stuff was really neat that he could see like, oh, wow, my, dad, my dad's kind of a badass. I mean, that's that's kind of important for him to see that, not just my dad's a this disabled guy in a chair, you know, that my dad really has some skills and because everyone wants to be proud of their dad and every dad wants their kid to be proud of them, you know, and um, doing things like that really got to, got my son to see me in a different light, got to see me doing things that normally he would never get to see me do. And, um, that along with, um, when I was at the, um, 
military Paralympics to be around all the guys. First time I've been around guys with um, similar disabilities, especially military guys. And the interaction that we had with each other was absolutely amazing. For the first time, these guys could open up and talk about things they never talked about, that they never felt comfortable about talking to anyone else, nor they think anyone else could really understand what they were going through unless you've been there, done it. And that's when I realized that there's a need for a place like this. And um, and we can talk about this anytime or another time. That's why I'm creating the Veterans Outpost. I put all my experiences in the 23 years in a chair of what these veterans are missing. And uh, we've, we've developed that here recently. But um, but yeah, it was, it was important for me to let some of these young guys who just got injured know that there is life after disability. And it might not be better it might not be worse, but it's going to be different, and you need to accept the changes, and you need to find all the tools you can to help you with this very difficult life that's been kind of forced upon you, you know, by your injury. And I said, and getting a dog is the best thing you can do. You know, I told him, just just trust me on this, you know, and and then for then things will will follow, and things will come into place when you get your dog. It's going to open up doors for you that you never even realized that you even had. You know, it's it's very hard to explain. But um, you just got to kind of trust me on that one. And I told them, too, you just got to trust me with this. And just trust me from the many, many years that I've been in a chair. Um, this is what you need to do. So, Have you heard from any of those guys, like, later on where they tell you, man, you were absolutely right? Or I'm sure none of them told you you were wrong. But have you heard stories past you bringing them in? Uh, yeah, a few of them. Um some of the first ones that were my friends that I first kept in contact with, but, um, yeah. And, and, um, every time I do the first words I say is, man, thank you for doing this for me. Thank you for, for bringing this life that this dog has now given me, you know, thank you for helping me get through this process in a, in a way that I never thought I could, they could get through it. Just like myself, you know, I stumbled upon this organization, um, just because I was, part of another organization helping kids with disabilities and canine companions had a booth there and said, Hey, have you thought about getting a dog? And I told them that I'm, a, I'm too independent. I'm not disabled enough. Like I'm a single dad and raised three kids. Y'all aren't going to give me a dog, you know? And they said, well, I think you might be surprised. You should, you know, try to qualify for one. And, and of course I qualified as accepted, but you know, it's just, um, it was just by chance that, that I came upon this organization. So, yeah, it's 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 a life changer, and everyone that I've met that has gone through that, and you know, I, I get um, I meet people every now and then. Like I'll I was speaking at an event in um, in Florida um, for Canine Companions, and this woman was there with her husband and saying, "Oh my gosh, I read your book, and now I got a dog because of it, and it's changed me." And she was at the event because it was a Canine Companions event, and so I completely changed my life. I, I hear that probably um, maybe four or five times a year, you know, someone going through something like that. Yeah. It's kind of neat to, uh, um, to hear about maybe that you've helped them make a difference in their life. Just kind of like, I wish the guy on the wheelchair basketball team, I wish I could come across his path again, or he'd come across mine, you know, I mean, I have so much to thank him for, you know? Absolutely. I, I have one final question about the dogs, about the program. When you look at it, and especially I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but I, I do want to talk about it. When you look at a dog and, and you say, this dog's only going to be here for a certain amount of time. It, it, it's, it's, 
going to be way less than a human. We, we, as if good things happen, we'll see them our whole life. You know that sadness is going to come. And when I read the end of your book, I really wanted to ask you, when you know all this kind of thing is going to happen, how do you go, I continue want to be a part of this. I continue want to continually want to have a dog to be a part of this, to bring this into my life. When you know at the end there's going to be sadness, and and it's in short bursts. You would agree. These time frames that you have these dogs are yeah. short bursts of your life. How do you continue to do it, especially after reading the end of the book? How do you continue to tell yourself, I want to be a part of this? I want that in the end. Well, surprisingly, that's one of the easiest questions you've asked me because um, when um, – well, I don't want to give away that either, but when – you know, when I no longer had, had Nepal and, um, he was, uh, I went back to that life again where I was completely ignored in the grocery store and it just, I was miserable. Like I was just, I went to invisible again. I forgot how much, um, people just ignored you. I forgot how much my dog really helped me, um, navigate through life, not just with helping me you know, from turning light switches on and off to getting, you know, my clothes out of the dryer. And of course he hadn't learned how to fold them yet, but he's, um, he could, he could sure get them out of the dryer and put them on my lap and, and open and close doors for me and pull my wheelchair and, and all these many things. And, and, um, it, it wasn't just that, but, you know, just going through life, I felt like I was alone again, even though I had my kids there and I definitely wasn't alone, but man, that, piece was missing and it was a big piece of my life. So it was a no brainer. I mean, just a week of just being without a service dog. I was like, man, I, and I, I called up canine companions and, you know, I told them right when, you know, I told them, I was like, you know, I, I, I put me in line again, put me on the list. I want to get a dog as soon as I possibly can. And, um, but you know, it's just, you know, and like my, my second dog will never be another Nepal. Um, you know, and it's kind of neat because um, I've, I'm on my third, third service dog, and they're all so different, but they're all perfect for me in the time that I need them. You know, they, um, as far as their energy level or what they do or, or or whatever it might be, and and I just knew that I really miss that quality of life that I had with my service dog, and I want to get back there as soon as I can. So it was it was pretty easy. As as no one, you know, there's going to be an end to it. It's still the, the the hope and love and and um, the the joys and and um, the just making your life so much better. It's, yeah, it's just a no brainer. Here, I'll bring Yago. Come here, buddy. I think he's sleeping next. Give me just a second. Go ahead. I'm gonna bring Yago. Introduce him here real quick. Yago, come. So I want to talk about veterans outposts. That's how we're going to end this up. And and you said this was been your, you know, your culmination of everything you've done. There it is. Uh, this is the culmination of everything you've done. Uh, let's talk about how you're incorporating everything in your life from service dogs to being in the outdoors to, to just becoming a whole new person. Yeah. So, you know, it, it and my dad taught me one thing. Um, it taught me many things, but the one thing I really learned from him and it's about, it's not about your life. It's about the difference you make in other people's lives. And, you know, that's always been like my therapy. That's always what, what really helped me, you know, is doing that. And, you know, there's, 
I said earlier, there's, there's 22 veterans, you know, a day that, that take their life. And um, I think I just read somewhere that with that and with the um, active duty um, taking their life, it's equivalency of two 9-11s every year. Um, that's tragic. That's a horrible way, a horrible end to our veterans who sacrificed so much for us. And um, and I just know that that what I've been through, that there's so much, there's so much I can give these guys, you know, lessons learned and and everything that I've been through that could really help these guys live a a quality and and purpose driven life. And I think that's the problem is that, you know, like myself, you go from jumping out of airplanes to living and you know, just say kicking down doors and, and taking names to, you know, trying to do a wheelie in a wheelchair, you know, or you can't even get across the your front yard without getting stuck. And, you know, it, it's, um, it, 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 it can be horrible. And, um, you know, so I just got to let these guys know that I said earlier is that you can't have a purpose driven life. And I think that's the problem is these guys lose their purpose. And uh, that's when they, I think, lose their will to, uh, to go on. And they feel like that they're pretty helpless and they can't contribute to society anymore. And that's a horrible feeling to be. I, I've been there. Um, but, you know, I think that I found the right tools to have a successful life despite of the adversity that I've gone through, um, you know, with the dog and mostly with the dog, with the sports and family. And, um, you know, as I said 90 percent of guys go through a, a divorce, you know, they go through an injury like mine. So I wanted to find a place that to to really focus on putting an end to all that things that are, um, um, that these disabled vets are, are going through. And, um, you know, so, you know, a lot of times when I did, um, events for disabled veterans, it was more like a drinking fest. And some of these guys that have PTSD or, or, um, you know, have, um, uh, have a lot of depression and stuff. That's probably not the best thing for them, you know? And, um, I wanted a place where, Everyone's included, including the families. Um, for instance, like my boys, I'd give anything if they could talk to boys, to kids their own age that gone through what they've gone through, so they can understand what each other's going through. Like nobody can relate to what my kids are going through or what they went through growing up with their dad being in a chair. I can't even relate to it because I haven't even experienced it. Um, you know, but no one can relate to them. No one, um, you know, and other things, and you know, so you know, I just feel like that, like I said, I've got this recipe from the things that I've learned that I can really make a dent in that 22, you know, vets a month taking their life. And, and that's about getting them these highly trained service dogs for your charge. It's about showing them that there's things you can do that, um, everything from sports to, um, and then we also want to show them about maybe there's counseling that they can have. And there's, there's grants and stuff that I didn't even know about that can renovate your home. And these great organizations can do that too. They can make your life a lot easier. And there's other great organizations that can help along. So we've had a lot of different um, organizations that can really carry on the process, but we just, but I just really think when you get these families together and they can talk about the things they've been through, the the spouses and the kids along too. And then, um, you know, and then we have the, the manager cows out there. So they can just go out and take a walk or a roll and, you know, and, and, you know, like I ask a, a paraplegic, like, have you been on a horse? And they're like, no, should I? I'm like, yes. I mean, when, and I, we had horses growing up and my sister showed horses and I always been on a horse, but it wasn't until I didn't really appreciate them until I was a paraplegic and someone threw me on a horse and it wasn't easy. 
Um, I'm not even sure how I got up there. I think it was with the tractor that lifted me up and put the horse underneath me and tied my legs into the stirrups. And I'm like, if I fall, this is not going to be good with my legs tied to the stirrups. But, but when I got on that horse and actually rode with my son, um, I got to, there was no, like, there was no restraints for my wheelchair. I had total freedom of movement. I could go wherever I wanted to. Um, and now with the right saddles that we have at the Veterans Outpost, that you can jog and run and do whatever you want to on the horses. Um, we're specially made saddles. But when you have that freedom and it feels like you're walking, go anywhere you want, and you're not restricted to your wheelchair, it's it's an amazing, like scuba diving too. You know, we get these guys scuba certified where there's nothing off limits. You can go wherever anyone else can go. And your wheelchair is nowhere to be found. I mean, those things are not just great for the, the time being, but those things last for months and months, you know, and um, there's so many more things, but like I said, the lessons I've learned in the 23s in a chair, I really think that we can make a great contribution and, you know, to these guys that, that really need our help. And those are the guys that don't ask for it too, you know, um, the guys that really need the help. They're harder to find, but I, I, I've, I come across them all the time. Um, and also too is, um, you know, is that most of these organizations, uh, for instance, like the Wounded Warrior Project, they only help you if you got hurt after 9-11. And, you know, PTSD doesn't go away and limbs, limbs just don't grow back. So, I mean, if you got hurt before 9-11, you're not just going to be better because more time's gone by. You know, I mean, that's just, it's not the case. So, um, you know, we're happy to say that we help all veterans no matter where they were hurt, when they were hurt, it doesn't matter. You need our help. We're going to, we're going to be there and, and, we believe that um, we can make a difference. I strongly believe that. I think you can probably tell on my enthusiasm about this. So, Where can people go to help you guys with the Veteran Outpost? Uh, they can go to our website. It's um, vetoutpost.org. Um, you know, we're a brand new organization, but we're gaining momentum very quickly. And, and um, you know, like I said, I mean, you know, with Canine Companions, when we do our retreats and stuff we're going to bring canine companions to puppy raisers there so they can learn about these dogs and the difference that they can make we're trying to bring a lot of these organizations in there the ones that have really helped me um unfortunately sometimes i feel with these um foundations it's almost like you're competing against one another which is kind of sickening to me you know we're not competing against one another we're all there for the same reason that's to help the veteran you know so I love working with other organizations that feel the same way. You know, we're all in this together for, and for one reason to help those, to help our heroes. And David Thompson, the guy that started all this, that, that brought me along as a, as a co-founder, um, he's out there every day working the land, you know, he's got his heart and he's totally dedicated to it just like I am. So uh, we're excited. We're very excited about this. Any last messages that you have for anyone out there that may be going through something that that uh, they don't quite know what that purpose is it is at right now or that dark time in their life? Is there any message that you want to put out there? You know, that's that's. I mean, there is. I just, I just wanted to know that. I know you don't see that there's any way out of it now, but there is a way out of this, and. And you just can't expect to have the life that you have before. That's never going to happen. If you're expecting that, then then um, you'll never get better. But there is a life out for you. Out there is a life there for you. There is a, a life of purpose that you can make a difference in society. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I've done more from my wheelchair than and with my pain than I've ever done when I was this, you know, special operator doing the, you know, stuff that. Most people only dream about doing, you know, so 
Um, so you can make a difference in someone's life, no matter what condition or no matter what state that you're in, just kind of, just tell them to hold on that, that, um, we'll find you. Somebody's going to find you just, and don't be afraid to reach out for help either. You know, there's a lot of people out there that want to help and, and that can't help. And, um, just trying to keep it to yourself. That's some of the worst things these veterans say, the ones that are really hurting, they don't ask for help and they don't reach out and, and, um, they just got to reach out. They just got to show their vulnerability and, and show that, um, they need help. And, and there are people and, and, in places and in their faith, there's so many things that can help them. We just got to find what it is. Great words. Uh, where can people find you? So my website is, um, staff sergeant, jasonmorgan.com. It's S S G T jasonmorgan.com. And, uh, they can always, um, find me there. They can, um, you know, they can write me from my website and that's usually the way I get booked for doing, uh, speaking events and different things like that. And, um, um, you know what? And, um, you know, we've been on everything from Good Morning America to uh, place of this country, talking to people and, and doing things and, and trying to make a difference. So pretty much find us everywhere. All right. Anywhere uh, social media that they can find you? Yeah, that's just on my website is the best place. Okay. It's All right. SSGTJasonMorgan.com. Sounds yeah. great. Uh, this has been an amazing conversation, this book. People need to read it. Uh, like I said, it really got me in the end. It's an amazing story. So I think that's going to be the conversation tonight. Guys, you know where you can find Jason at. Here's where you can find me. You can find me on Instagram, the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. But your one-stop shop, it's going to be dtdpodcast.net. That's got audio, video, pictures from Jason, his own episode page, his links where you can find the book, where you can find his website, where you can find out anything that you want to about him. You can do it all from there, dtdpodcast.net. Now, don't forget, you got to stop by our sponsor. We talk about him every week, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. You know they're an officer-owned business. You know they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped to you as soon as they're made for the freshest coffee available. Each batch, it's roasted by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not miss one drop when flavor's concerned. And don't forget, they got One Ranger, that's the Texas Pecan, they got NYPD Brew, they got the Peppermint Mocha, and they got what everyone loves, Pumpkin Spice, right now. It's some of the best you'll find, and it serves an important cause that we talk about every week. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And when you go to their website, policecoffee.com, put in DJK10 for 10% off your order. Make sure you go check them out. Get your coffee from them. It's some of the best you'll find. Guys, that's going to be it. Like I said, that's Jason. I'm DJ. Catch us on the next show. We'll see you later.